Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. Hello all, welcome to the first episode of Satellite in our 2023-24 season, which is the second half of our two-year season called The American Generation. This year, Profile is doing something I think is pretty incredible and fairly rare. All three of our full productions this year are world premieres. Uh, meaning they've never received a full production anywhere else in the world. Um, That means, among other things, that our playwrights are much more involved with these productions than they typically would be or that they will be for subsequent productions of these plays. Um, That means that they're weighing in on the audition process, they're um, in the room for rehearsals, and they're even making changes to the script uh, based on what's happening in the rehearsal room. So the first show of our season is Awestruck by Christopher Oscar Pena. Profile introduced audiences to Pena's work with our final show last year, How to Make an American Son, and we're delighted to be producing two of his plays this year, Awestruck, which we're rehearsing right now, and Our Orange Sky, which Profile commissioned and will close out this two-year season in June of 2024. In this episode of Satellite, I sat down with both Chris Pena and Profile Artistic Director Josh Hecht, who is also directing this production, during their dinner break from rehearsal. We talked about how this play has evolved uh, since Chris first wrote it and Josh first read it nearly a decade ago, and how it is continuing to evolve through this process. I hope you enjoy quick Josh and Chris just say three things that you see cardboard plywood large saws large saws a red ladder a blue trash bin and um, a skull Mm, and lots of wood scraps lots of wood scraps lots of wood scraps yeah Yeah, there's uh, in fact the microphone is sitting on a fan there are fans everywhere no just a few but they're all different shapes and sizes Right there is where we did the blood test for Gloria a couple of years ago. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Third so working theater. We're in like a we're in we're in like a build space. We're in a construction space, and so I just just trying to set the scene because this is a podcast. So you know, for all you know, we're in velvet chairs being fed grapes, and I assure you, that is not true. We are not not a nary a grape in sight. So. We are here to talk about the first show in Profile Season, Awestruck. And I was hoping, Josh, you could give us a little bit of context uh, in case folks are joining us for the first time or just need a little bit of a refresher. Um, Your 
overview of your sort of vision for this two-year season and the playwrights that are involved? Sure, yeah. Um, We're at the beginning of the second year of this two-year season, and um, the season features the work of Christopher Diaz, Pulitzer Prize finalist for The Elaborate Entrance of Chad Deity, Uh, Lauren Yee, one of our most prolific playwrights of our generation, and Chris Pena, um, the writer of some pretty incredible prestige TV and some pretty incredible plays that we get to produce. And, you know, we, we generally have started producing in these two-year cycles where we select two or sometimes three writers whose work seems to be in conversation with one another. And over the course of two years, where we might produce six to eight plays, um, we're able to surface some pretty interesting conversations that come when you hold up the bodies of work of two extraordinary artists next to each other and see what they have to say to one another. So this season, um, all three of these playwrights are either um, first or second generation American, depending on how you define those terms, um, or in Chris Diaz's case, um, the child of people who've moved to the U.S. mainland from Puerto Rico. Um, And so among the many different conversations that these works have uh, been able to start are questions of belonging, of um, American identity, of intersectional identity, and what it means to be an American in the 21st century at a time when more people than ever are identifying as mixed race, multiracial, Um, And where I think as a society, we are increasingly comfortable with holding multiple identities simultaneously and really claiming those multiple identities simultaneously. And I think all of the plays that we are um, exploring over these two years have these really incredibly rich intersectional characters um, and help us ask some of those questions. Chris... Can, since we're kind of starting on this macro level, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it has meant for you to participate in a season where your work is in conversation with these other two playwrights, Lauren Yee and Christopher Diaz. Um, I mean, it's been really great. I, I think uh, most for the last uh, 20, 30 years of theater, uh, and certainly in my career, and I think both Lauren and Chris will attest to this, uh, we're usually the only writer of color on a season. Um, we're certainly never, um, there's never more than one Latino for in the case of Chris and I. Um, so we're usually in conversation with other white writers, and that experience is so different that it can feel like speaking to a void. Um, and I think what's cool about this is that uh, you know, at the playwrights convening, we discovered that Chris and I, who are very different, uh, just in terms of you know, he's an East Coast Latino, I'm a West Coast Latino. He's got a family. I'm you know still spending my money on bags. Um, he's Puerto Rican. I'm Honduran. Like uh, he's 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 very straight. I'm very not straight. Um, we we found that our plays have incredibly uh, uh, they're so different theatrically but they're so similar thematically like we're exploring so many things that are the same and it was really cool to realize that those questions really come i think for the both of us from 
what does it mean to be a, a person of color whose family has sacrificed so much for us to do whatever we want? And what has that cost them? And what does that cost us? Um, and what are we doing with that? And is it worth it? And I think that is something that we would never have discovered on the normal seasons that we are in. So that's been really, really cool. And then add on top of that, Lauren, who is also, you know, she's from the Bay Area, I'm from the Bay Area. Like, it's so cool to um, see all these common things that we never get to have with each other because it's usually just one of us. Um, I think, I don't know of any other predominantly white institution in all of America right now that has all writers of color on a season. So that is crazy. Uh, while you were talking, Chris, also, um, I've been reminded by, um, over the course of like doing these interviews over the past year, um, the a lot of people talking about just like the diversity of the Latino or Latine experience. I remember uh, the director for How to Make an American Son just talking about voting and how like there's this idea of the like, Latino, like Latino voting block, and it's just a total myth because there's so much diversity. Um, do you do you feel like you can speak at all to that? Just like your awareness of sort of the diversity of the Latino experience, like in the we'll keep it to like in the U.S. Sure, I mean, like I think it's almost I think it, it's crazy when I'm not not this question, but and other situations where I'm essentially asked to speak for Latinos, mm-hmm. and which I think is so psychotic because that assumes that we're all the same, and it's like it's so it's like oh clearly you don't know your history um, because it's like some of us want to be here. I mean, you know, a lot of the West Coast Latinos, for instance, whether it's Mexican immigrants or Honduran immigrants, or you know, we're like literally it's it's sad, but we're being. Uh, we're not being allowed in, right? Whereas a lot of people, like the Cubans on the East Coast, like were brought here and didn't want to, none of the, a lot of them didn't want to be here and a lot of them don't want to be here. And a lot of those, if you look at the plays that a lot of the great Cuban playwrights um, wrote, a lot of those stories start, and I think this is a thing that real Cubans used to say, it's like, you know, in Havana next Christmas, because they all would always assumed they would go back or want to go back. So just those basic core ideas of wanting to be in the U.S. versus not differentiate us so much. And those are just like basics of how we even got here, right? Um, so it's... And, and you have to then think about like what we look like, right? Like what does an Afro-Latino look like? What is their experience versus somebody who is white passing? So it's so insane that the American theater or entertainment business thinks that like we're all the same, that one person can speak for all of us, right? Um, so what I think is is the problem is that I think there is a, a large percentage of people that are not being spoken to. And the problem is that everyone thinks that one of us can speak to all of us. And that's just not true because within the specific minorities, we're all alien to each other because we don't in fact share the same experience. Let's talk about Awestruck, the play we're currently in rehearsal for. Chris, can you just talk a little bit about the origins of this story? Sure, I was in, I've been living in New York for a long time and I, I moved to Chicago. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that I um, was alone. And what I mean by that is when I grew up, I had a family and friends or I had high school friends, that social group, go to college, 
It's a new world. We have your built-in college friends. When I moved to New York, um, which is a scary thing to do, I had my grad school friends, and then you kind of build off that. When I went to Chicago, I had no built-in community. And so as much as I... The theater was my community as much as I went to theater events and parties. Like, nobody would invite me to things because they had already built their cliques and I wasn't part of that, right? So I just remember being incredibly lonely. Um, also, <laughs> Chicago, for those of you who have not lived there, can be very cold. Um, <laughs> which, listen, I love cold. I love a good jacket. But it can get very dark. So also, we talk about seasonal depression and all that. It's like on top of just my regular sadness and loneliness... It was dark out all day, every day. And so it was it was really dark in that sense. Um, then I got a commission from the Goodman to write a play, and I didn't know immediately what to write. And then I, I found this article uh, in a newspaper that essentially was uh, it was very small, which is part of the reason I was so struck by it. Um, and an Irish woman had come to the U- to Chicago on vacation with her friends, and she had been brutally beaten by a total random stranger uh, or strangers. And the end of the article is simply that she's now back in Ireland and sits by a window, essentially vegetative, with these tubes around her body, um, looking out the window as her father feeds her. Um, and I just found that really sad, and I felt like I had to write a plague that uh, around that image and around that idea. Um, and so I think that combined with my uh, kind of loneliness and my, like, questioning of, like, should I be in Chicago? Should I go back to New York? Should I be in California where I was from? I really was, felt really displaced and not, and I kept thinking about what my home was and where I should be over the next decade. And so I think all those things came together and I really um, just started to wonder about um, home. Uh, and the thing, I think the question that was new for me in that um, time was the idea of neighbors, the idea of what do we as individuals on a micro level in like a neighborhood um, or as Americans on a macro level um, owe to each other as neighbors? Like, How do we take care of each other? Do we take care of each other? Um, next door, the country next door, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I kept thinking about what we owe other people. Um, Josh, can you talk a little bit about how this play entered your world and your relationship to it? This is um, one of the first plays that really made me fall in love with Chris's writing and Chris's voice as a writer. I had I had seen an earlier play of his called A Cautionary Tale that was produced at the Flea Theater. That was his sort of first production. And um, and Chris and I met when I reached out to him for comps yeah. because that's what one <laughs> that's does. What we do. And I was we a star artist. Yes, we need to. And, uh, but, but it was a play that, that um, people I loved were talking about. And so I, I wanted to see it. I wanted to get to know his writing. And Chris had sent me another play of his called Icarus Burns. Yeah. And um, and both of those, I had really admired the voice. I'd really admired the audacity, the theatricality, the brashness of what he was exploring. Um, but Awestruck, when I read that, really kind of broke my heart open and um, moved me so deeply. And, and I was just kind of floored by the mix of brutality and tenderness in the play and love in the play and the questions of belonging um, uh, that really sort of spoke to me. And it's also a very queer story. 
and with a capital Q, mm-hmm. and um, and that really spoke to me. Uh, and so, you know, as Chris and I kept getting to know each other more as artists and as friends, um, I read subsequent drafts of it. It's a play that was workshopped at Sundance and was workshopped at Labyrinth and um, just sort of always had my eye on it, you know. And then here at Profile, when we did the Kiara Hudes season, we did a reading of it as part of our In Dialogue program. And we did two, two public readings of it over two nights. And... Um, the house was packed for both readings, and the play starts in a very kind of audacious way. And I thought, how's this gonna go? <laughs> and, um, and people loved it. And I remember a board member coming up to me afterwards and saying, can we do this play next season? And I said, well, you know, our mission, right? And at the time we were just doing one playwright, one season. And I said, so, you know, it's kind of all or nothing. We can't, so, you know, we would only do the play if we're doing a whole season. And she said, well, do we have to stick to the mission? I love this play so much. You know, so it really, (laughs) it really, um, it really touched people and it really spoke to people. And uh, so it's always been on my list. And so when we started thinking about a Christia's um, a Chris Pena season. Yes. This is Chris Pena's least favorite thing. It's hard. You gotta keep it. I feel now in honor about it. Yeah. A Chris <laughs> Pena season. When we started talking about that, this was a play that I knew had to be in the season somewhere, you know. Um, so it's kind of anchored the season for us. Profile Theatre invites you to become a member for part two of our special 25th anniversary season, The American Generation. This year we will continue to celebrate the works of Christopher Diaz, Christopher Oscar Pena, and Lauren Yee, three of today's most celebrated writers. This season explores the works of Lauren Yee through a special reading series and will produce three world premiere plays from Christopher Diaz and Christopher Oscar Pena. Memberships start at just $65 and include member benefits such as behind-the-scenes events and exclusive member gatherings. Join us today and enjoy a hot new season of hot new plays. Get your membership now at ProfileTheater.org. Chris, we chatted a little bit super briefly last night at the door um, about the audacious opening of this play um can you i don't want i don't want to um take a swing at describing it if you're here to do so so <laughs> can you sort of um talk about that opening monologue and uh and yeah just like why it's important or what the what the fuss is i don't know so part of the reason i also wrote the play is that in my career, this happened a lot as queer, 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 queer. Um, a lot of, well, we can talk about this later. A lot of people who think they're smarter than they, I think they are, have said have said some really racist shit to me or, or about me. Um, and one of the things that I have often gotten from a lot of literary directors and artistic directors who are woke is them asking why I write the plays that I write. Meaning that when I first started writing plays, I didn't write race into plays. Um, I was raised, you know, if you saw American Sun, I was raised in the Bay Area. My family had no money in that, made a lot of money. And 
because the Bay Area is so diverse, I was much more interested in class than I ever was in race. Race was like not a thing I ever thought I was going to talk about. To me, race was like outdated and not a thing. Um, it wasn't until I moved to New York that I was like, oh, people are very concerned about race. Um, and and so I would write these plays about rich white families. And really, I, I wouldn't describe them as white or anything. People would just assume they were white. And... Every time that people got excited about them, they'd have a reading or a workshop, and I would always hear that the artistic directors would be like, well, why isn't he writing about being Latino? Or like, why aren't they Latino? Um, or they'd be like, you know, and, and it happened over and over and over, um, which I think is just like so racist that that's like where people's brains go. And so I I was like, all right, like all these white writers are allowed to write about whatever they want. Um, the burden of writing about race falls on the people who have been victimized, right? Like, I like I not only have to experience racism, and then I have to, I'm required to write about it and go solve it for people. Um, and so, it was that made me really angry. And then, it's, and then I kind of got over it. And then I realized, just in my own life, I started to go back to writing about race in, a, in, my, in a, my own different way because it was what I was actually experiencing and living through and had to write about, right? So in a way, this play started off as an experiment about, all right, you want me to go write the race play? I'm going to go write it for you. And though I love this play, I do, I was angry that I had to write it. Um, and so I remember there was a version where I, I wrote... I forget if it was before or after Sundance. It was, I think, I, I think it was actually after Sundance. When I went to Sundance, the intro did not exist. Um, it was at the Labyrinth that I was. Lee Silverman was directing at the Labyrinth, and I and we were like talking, and um, the the beginning wasn't working. Something wasn't working. Uh, the connection between the acts, and she was like, "Why did you tell me about this play?" And I just monologued about my rage. Um, about the American theater and about racism. And then I started saying the audacious shit sometimes I say. And she was like, you need to write that down and put it in the play. And I found that it actually, I did, and, I, and it became the intro to the play, and it changed everything. Um, it contextualized for the audience that you're not going to watch a naturalistic living room drama, that this was going to be different. But then it allowed me to sort of... Um, figure out the the last act which now at profile josh and i are figuring out further is it's like we're going to go even further um but essentially it's it's um it's my contextualizing for everyone the reality of my experiences being a playwright in the american theater um and and then challenging the rules of what's okay to do what's not okay to do what's who gets to police that um there's like an uh there's a flippancy to the way that i speak and write sometimes that uh, make people think that i am very flippant and um you know in the room i can be but I, i'm actually not actually uh really then listening and, and thoughtful but i feel like the this beginning wants to be flippant because it wants to have this kind of like dangerous drive and energy to sort of launch the thing that being said, I think we are also being careful. And I think as artists at Profile and in the world, one of the things that's really hard right now is how to be careful and respectful and mindful of people. We talk about that a lot of artists and audience. But then also, 
how to challenge, you know, like a lot of times in our, in our taking care of the audience and the artists, we are then sort of stripping and um, back and pulling back and um, being less aggressive. Um, and so I think that the challenge is how to keep the teeth and the like ferocious danger of, you know, riding a bike without training wheels or like, you know, crossing that bridge without, I'm just making a bad word, <laughs> but um, while still being at least aware. And so I think what's really also been great about this is having that conversation as artists in the room so that when we experience that outside of the room, it's not like anybody's shocked or confused that we know that these are things that um, we're talking about is what I'll say. But the intro is fire. <laughs> Uh, it it is it is um it I think I don't know Josh as someone who has lived and worked in the theater for a long time in New York and now for a long time here in Portland um there are like words in the play that you know spoken by white people that white people aren't allowed to say aren't quote 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 allowed to say. And um, I'm curious about how you feel when you mm-hmm. encounter that kind of material mm-hmm. or how you think about um, how it will be received by yeah. your audience, by our audience. Yeah, I think I think I, there's a, I hear a couple questions in there. I mean, I think one in terms of the impact of that monologue itself, I think that it has seemed to me that part of what um, Chris is speaking to in it is, a, a false sense that maybe the work is done, right? That we've that we've educated ourselves and we're coming to see diverse quote unquote theater and therefore we have done the work and expunged racism from within ourselves and we can now sit back. And I think what Chris is trying to do is sort of challenge that, right? And make us sit in the assumptions that we may or may not still bring into the room and um, and that complacency and bear witness to what he's experienced as a uh, Latinx <laughs> theater artist. I think too, though, the in terms of um, how my sense of that has changed both you know, reading it in New York versus producing it in Portland and also reading it for the first time back in 2014, 2015. And here we are now in 2023. I think those things are, uh, I think both of those contexts, geographical and in terms of time, um, have a big impact on how we receive that, the play, that moment in the play. Um, When I first moved to Portland, I felt right away how much more racially charged this city is than my experience in New York. It was instantly part of the conversation that I was having all the time, it felt like. Um, And I think there was a a collision that I could sense right away between the intensity of Oregon's white supremacist history and the legacy of that and the and what of that has come all the way into the present of course with um a very progressive very well-meaning community here and complicated by you know one of the legacies of that white supremacy is that portland continues to be the whitest large city in the country 
Um, so there was also a sense that that conversation is happening among white people where people of color are still being pushed to the margins as we're having that conversation, you know, and that felt very charged. And then because that monologue is specifically talking about the American theater and Chris's experience as a theater artist in the American theater, um, you know, our audience may or may not be aware of a document called We See You White American Theater that came out in 2020 and that was co-written and co-signed by a group of 300 BIPOC theater artists who were demanding change in, you know, so from the top down in the American theater. And so one of the things that Chris and I have been exploring in terms of that monologue is updating that monologue and really bringing it into the present and saying, well, the context and the conversation has evolved since it was first written. And so what does it mean to hold up that mirror or hold us to account or make us sit in discomfort or sit in the complexity of, you know, where we are um, right now, as opposed to eight or 10 years ago? Um, I want to make sure that we're also talking, like this is a piece of the, of the, but the, the theater part the reflection on the state of American theater is like the first two minutes of the play. Yeah. I think what the play is talking about around belonging and family and home and safety and hidden selves and um, the ways that we do and don't know and can never know our parents or our parents, our children, you know, those sort of... Um, those are the things that that um, really move me about the play. We use, there's a lot of music in the play and there's a lot of echoes in the play, like thematically and uh, kind of on purpose uh, character things. But one of the things we've discovered is just how these characters who come from completely different backgrounds, who think of themselves as completely different worlds and um, share these like sort of core memories that without revealing too much that then that feels so different and alien to each other and yet you realize that actually our, our DNA our cultural DNA is in some way so much more related than we ever think and it's been really fun to to see people who are completely different be like oh right we are actually we hold this thing in the same um, and I think that's been really fun in the play because I think we spend so much time feeling not connected to remember that like, no, we're all humans on the same planet. Like we actually do have these shared things. Josh has seen the joyful beauty of the play more than I have um, or had. And then this week in the room, I'm like, oh right, there are actually really kind of lovely, beautiful. There's a lot of lovely, beautiful things mm -hmm. in it. And that, that connection of how music resonates with people has been really special for, for me to remember. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I uh yeah, I think probably like I am not um I'm having trouble like finding um a door into that conversation because I do experience the play as like pretty um brutal. No doubt. Oh yeah. I yeah. mean that's yeah. that tension I think is part of what's so interesting in the play. It is an absolutely brutal play. It's uh it, there is a an act of violence that happens in the middle of the play. Um, that's a real sort of turning point in the story that is um, pretty horrifying and the ramifications of it are pretty horrifying. But what I think ultimately the play is also speaking to is the 
care that community can bring and the potential for connection across seemingly insurmountable barriers. I mean, that, that moment is the product of intense hatred of the other, right? And yet, by the play's end, we have these people who are forging a family of sorts across generation, across race, across gender, across sexuality, um, and without what we typically think of as some of the ties that bind us. No one's related in that family, right? Um, no one is obligated to one another. They have found one another and are finding ways to care for one another and in small, incomplete ways to attempt to start to repair some of that violence. And that's what I think is so beautiful about it. And the other thing that I think has been really interesting about the process is, you know, because this is a world premiere and because this is a play that Chris started writing a decade ago, you know, and had a bunch of development and then kind of got put down and has now been sort of picked back up. Um, uh, a, I think, you know, in the production process of a world premiere, we just make discoveries, yeah. right, that... Um, that find their way into the text and into the kind of the DNA of the play. But also, you know, the world has changed, as you alluded to earlier, right? So the context within and that impacts the play. And then two, you know, Chris has changed, right? Yeah. right? As a decade will do for anyone. And so, you know, there was a moment in rehearsal the other day when, um, when you said something, Chris, about... Um, that moment in one's life when one realizes our parents can't actually save us, right? And we can rely on them and turn to them for so much and we need them for so much, but at the end of the day, they can't save us. And I, sitting next to you, had this moment, and you were talking about sort of um, make, pull, teasing that theme out a little bit in the play, and I thought, I wonder if that's a, an insight that Chris at near 40 has come to, that Chris at near 30 may not have had, right? Mm -hmm. And there's something really exciting about um, an artist revisiting their work and, um, and sort of unearthing um, the potential in it. Yeah, there are also plays that I think you don't want to touch because you're like, I was a different person and I want to honor that. But I think this play, because of its theatrical language, um, actually wants that mm -hmm. wants to sort of kind of pull out some of that great stuff and um and actually i think a lot of the things that we sort of were vague before now we're sort of filling in because i have different sort of understandings of those moments like mm -hmm. the dad stuff you know we're talking right. about being parents um but and a different a different sense of craft and control of craft yes you know? yeah I for mean, sure yes um and you know it's, i i, I want to say to the this thing about the brutality in the play like you know, I think that I was saying earlier, like, I was really angry 10 years ago. I was really angry 10 years ago. And then I would say four years ago, I was really happy. And then in the last two years, I've got I'm angry now. No, in the last two years, I've had a lot of um, great success. But I've also, because um, the plays are so autobiographical, I've started to, I think, share a lot of stuff that I haven't wanted to with people. And then having that process having that process in front of people is incredibly uh, painful with American Sign, which in, in Portland was received 
thank God, in one way. But when we first did it in Arizona, I wrote a monologue that I thought was going to finally have people see me and understand me. And actually, I remember every night the way they cheered against me, feeling like, oh, in this world, in this community, in this crowd, I gave them a reason to to keep hating me in a way, uh, which was really painful. And I just have to say, I say, I say that to say that with Ostrug, that rage is still in that. And I think the moment of brutality is so awful, but I think in many ways it's, it's for me to be like, this is what it's like to be here for a lot of us. And this is what, and and I think a lot of people like want to pretend that that's not real life. Um, and so sometimes I'm like, until you actually look at it, you're just going to keep walking past your day and being like, that's not who we are. Um, and so I think the cost of that moment is so large for and for the artists to have to take it on. And I think for us who are like are building it, but I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's important for people to know how we experience and see the world because it is really real. Um, so I think hopefully out of that brutality comes the joy of the end of the play of seeing this community come together, but also hopefully that the audience is like, oh, we got to go home and think about what we've been doing. You know? And I think that piece too is part of what makes it feel so relevant right now because I think there is a sense in Portland in particular of... Um, of... Mm, there's a lot of conversation around emergence and revitalization and how do we take the lessons of the last three years in particular and put them to good use and how do we find joy and how do we find hope and how do we find life out of all of this painful um, but necessary kind of turmoil that we've been through in the last several years. And I think I think that too is what the play is about, you know? So it goes to some very dark places and then travels out of them. And um, and the healing of that, I think, is, is um, something that I feel so many of us really searching for right now. Josh, we have to let you get back to rehearsal. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> go, true. go make Good the luck. play. Good luck, Josh. Good luck Thank with that play. Thank you for play. spending your entire uh, meal break with us. I hope you get a chance to eat something. I am going to shove some quiche in my face shove during some, rehearsal. Shove some quiche in your face. Yeah. You, you don't have to walk and talk quite as much mm-hmm. as the others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Tamara. Thank you, Chris. Yes. I'll see Thank you, you um, tomorrow. Oh, yes. Did you want to... Thank you for joining us for Satellite. I'm your host, Tamara Carroll, Profiles Director of Community Engagement. Awestruck runs November 9th through 19th at Imago Theater. It's a two-week run, so get on top of getting your tickets now. We've added Saturday matinees and Sunday evenings to our usual show schedule. Get over to ProfileTheater.org for details and tickets, and make sure to watch out for our next episode where we talk to the video and projection design team from 5Ohm about the way AI is shaping and transforming their approach to design and content creation for the show. 